So we come to this section, we've been following the life of Jacob uh, through this series, The Father, Sons of the Father. Jacob, just to a very, very quick uh, recap, Jacob uh, has tricked his older brother Esau out of all of the blessings of his father, the inheritance, and he dashes off to uh, stay with his uncle Laban, his mum's brother, uh, to escape the very angry brother Esau. In reality, what he went with was nothing compared to what he thought he was inheriting. He just left, walking through the desert by himself. And what happens while he is out in the wilderness on his uh, very dangerous journey, wondering whether he would even survive to get to his brother, uh, he receives the same blessing and the same promise that his, uh, great, his, un- his grandfather Abraham had received. This continuous thread of promise of God You know, if we can start this afternoon by just thinking about that and reminding ourselves about that, it's incredibly important because what we need to keep focused in our minds is this story, the whole of this story, the complexity, the mess, the drama, the crisis, it is all about God delivering His promise in the middle of a mess, in the middle of unfaithfulness, in the middle of wrong attitudes. It is God being faithful. I guess in one sense, nothing could be clearer than that this afternoon. As we read through that, and we're going to work through it this afternoon, we see just a really messed up family. We see, we see jealousy, we see anger, we see disruption. And yet what we also see is an essential foundation for the rest of the Bible. Because what we actually see here is the birth of a nation. So let's keep those two things in mind. We see the birth of a nation and we see God's faithfulness in these few verses. That's a great starting point because uh, that takes our minds to, if you like, an elevated place. And now that we're in an elevated place, we're now going to jump off into the mess that this family life is all about. We need to keep a few other things in mind as well. Firstly, we are living alongside the real world of the ancients. That's the first thing. We're living according to the customs. We're observing certain customs, patterns of behavior which are not consistent with our way of doing things today, nor are they consistent with the way that God had determined that human life should be worked out. So God determines a pattern for human life together, a pattern for family life, and what we see here is a complete disruption of that. So we see two wives as one pattern, so we see polygamy, and we also see this second pattern of the ownership of other human beings in terms of slave, literal slave ownership. What we saw last time is that um, Jacob is tricked into marrying two daughters of his uncle Laban, Leah and Rachel. He loves one, he doesn't love the other. The first one that he loves is the one that he ends up marrying second. 
so uh, if Uncle Laban tricks him into marrying Leah, who he never wanted to marry in the first place, and he ends up with this second wife. But we also see that Laban gives each of his daughters uh, a servant, a hand servant, uh, to be a, a literal owned companion. And then what we see in this story as it unfolds is that that companion, that servant, owned servant, is then given by uh, the, uh, the woman, Leah and Rachel, in each case, uh, given by their servant own, their, uh, owner to the husband, Jacob, to be, if you like, a surrogate mother. Uh, surrogacy is not a new concept, it's an ancient concept, but it carried far more uh, significance in the ancient world. In the ancient world, those who were owned as slaves in that hand, handmaiden kind of model, single ownership, could be given as, uh, as surrogate uh, wives and surrogate mothers, therefore, uh, and the, uh, the owner of that woman would consider the child to be hers, literally. So so that's just so different to our world, isn't it? It's not what we see. And yet, isn't it great to remind ourselves of that fact? God is working out His plan in the mess of the cultural leanings of each generation. God is working out His plan in that mess. God doesn't expect, in fact, God doesn't work, thankfully, through a perfect world. He works through a mess. Do you feel as if we're living in a bit of a mess at the moment? Do you feel when you look around and you think, well, this is crazy, this is chaotic, this is... Where's God? Chapters, sections like this can remind us that in the middle of the mess, we can be confident that God has not deserted, that God is not distant. The fact that God works in it doesn't mean that he approves of it. In fact, that's one of the reminders that we see in the life of Jacob. So we've got a few things going on. We've got God keeping his promises. We've got the birth of a nation in the middle of a mess. The third idea that I want to put at the forefront is let's just sit for a minute alongside Jacob. Just stop. Draw up a, draw up a stone and sit alongside the campfire with Jacob. And just ask him, What's life for you right at this moment in time? You've found yourself distant from your family, but you've created a new family here. You've got wives, you've got a growing family unit. How's life, Jacob? How is your relationship with God, Jacob? a great question to ask, isn't it? In a sense, this chapter asks that question. Jacob, how is your relationship with God? In a sense, because that question is in a way asked, it can be asked of us, can't it? I, I can in, it's great being able to ask that direct question 
to a gathering like this because it doesn't become really personal and pointed uh, to just one person, but, but it does in another way. It's like, how is your work, walk with God right at this moment in time? Do you have a walk with God? Are you living in a world which is messed up? Absolutely. Well, are you seeking to live in this messed up world consistent with your claim of faith? What we see here, in fact, through the journey of Jacob, and the New Testament says it, we see Jacob who's living a life which is wrestling with his relationship with God. He's fighting all the time, constantly fighting, constantly striving, constantly seeking to work his life out. And yet, remarkably, he's doing that when he's previously had a a clear promise from God of God's blessing. It's as though that incredible vision, as he's lying in the wilderness by himself, and he has this vision of, of heaven opened up with a staircase coming down to the earth, it's as though that doesn't have the kind of impact in his day-to-day life that you would expect it to. And when I think about that, I know that that is like so many conversations that we have, isn't it? We have those moments in our Christian experience where we know that God has broken through in a dramatic and incredible way, and yet it doesn't have the kind of impact that we would expect it to. It fades, it drifts, and we carry on wrestling. We carry on fighting. Let's have a look at how this works out. For Jacob. What we see is a repeated pattern. It's a pattern within this section for a start, but it's a pattern for affection. It's a pattern to be noticed and to be accepted and to be liked and to be loved. We've got two wives, and we know from the previous section that Jacob has made it really quite clear that he loves one, doesn't love the other. And we've got this inconsistency of relationship, one and the other, not connected. We see, we see Leah, who's, who's the non-loved one. What we actually read in verse 31 is this. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Isn't it interesting? Behind this birth of the nation, according to that verse, according to the way it's being worked out, this nation is being birthed because God is working. Here we have Leah. The not loved one is the one who ends up pregnant. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah are the next births that we read about in this section. Four sons for Leah. If you like, every, every possible indication that she was in that cultural world providing just what Jacob would need to love her just that kind of idea of continuity. Let's just stop for a minute because that might sound strange to us. 
Let's take our minds back to a world where there is literally, literally no, there's no supermarkets, um, there's no uh, welfare state, there's no kind of support anywhere. There's no, no provision. It, literally, our survival is dependent upon our ability to provide for ourselves. Which is why the ancient world lived by the idea that the, uh, the birth of sons, the birth of the ability to, to, to work as it was perceived in that particular culture at that time, the ability to work, to provide, to be able to farm, to be able to hunt, was, was a blessing. Because it was the idea that was a savior, something that was providing security and safety. To be childless was a death sentence. Not because, uh, not because it was some sort of spiritual or kind of a blessing, a blessing or curse in whatever way we want to think about it. But rather it was cutting off the ability to be provided for in later life. And here we see Leah, who in a real sense provides Jacob with security, with a future, with a hope. Surely she's going to be blessed. But what we also see is there is every opportunity that is taken to use those moments to elevate through the naming of those children. We, we, we don't really make names important in our lives, generally not anyway. Generally when somebody has a child, when a family has children, generally the naming of the child is just a name that you like, isn't it, these days? Or maybe a significant family name or whatever it might be. In the ancient world, the naming was significant. It was a way of making a statement and what we actually see through this section is kind of a war of names. Every time one of the women would have a child, there would be a name that is thrown up, a name which makes a statement. Leah became pregnant. She named him Reuben. It's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. That's why she named him Reuben. She conceived again. Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again. Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. This time I'll praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. And at every moment there is a statement of triumph which at the same time speaks to Rachel, speaks powerfully to Rachel. What is this all about? It's about the idea of being accepted and being loved and being valued. Isn't it interesting? Sibling rivalry between Rachel and Leah expressed out in looking and seeking the affection of Jacob. It's a bit of a pattern, isn't it? If we think back, Isaac, Esau and Jacob seeking the affection of, of Isaac. 
sibling rivalry, chaos within families. And so, Leah has these four sons. Rachel responds. In her, wor- in her words, she, she makes a statement which is just so passionate. Give me children or I'll die, is what she says. Give me children or I'll die. I, I am nothing without providing this future. Look at Jacob's response. Am I in the place of God? Who has kept you from having children? Am I in the place of God? He's angry. He's frustrated. And so the response from Rachel is to give him Bilhah, who bears him Dam and Naphtali. The response from Leah, when she sees this, is to give Zilpah to Jacob. Do you see the way the chapter is opening up? It goes from one, it goes to the other, servant, from the servant, back to another servant, from the servant, back to Leah, who then has Issachar and Zebulun and Dinah, and finally from the servant to Rachel. What? Why? I mean, for a start, that's the way it works. But secondly, the narrator constructs it in that way. He's constantly taking us from this, this tension from one to the other, to the other, to the other, trying, seeking, desperately looking to secure a future, to secure a hope, to secure acceptance. You know, I think in so many ways this particular section speaks into our world today. We we don't. We don't have that kind of security, literal cultural significance that comes with children in the way that, uh, that children are talked about in the Old Testament. I recognize and I really do... Um, see that not having children is a massive issue in today's culture. I know that it sounds like that that's what this chapter is all about, but in reality, I don't think it is quite about that. This is all about power. This is about some sort of structure of a shifting desire to be accepted. Of course, children are at the heart of it, But also it's about securing um, the way of being saved because that's what children did in the day. They were a massive, massive status. And both of them wanted to secure that status before Jacob. The reality is that we live like that so often, don't we? Our status symbols are somewhat different. We don't put the kind of hope of life invested into children in the way that the ancients would. You know, we, we don't look at our children 
as our pension security. Some might say they look at us as our pension security, but we don't look at our children as our pension security. They're not the way of us literally living in this world. But there are lots of other things, aren't there, that we put our security in this world in. We put our security in so many other things where we would say a bit like Rachel, give me this or I die. I need this so much to be, to be seen, to be accepted, to be secure. This is what my culture defines as what it is to live, whatever that might be. Maybe it's possessions. Maybe it's a job level of job security. Maybe it's some way of sustaining an, an adequate standard of life in right the way through our living experience. Maybe it's uh, a particular commitment to family relationships around us. Maybe it's being seen to have X, Y, Z. In a sense, they are all parallels to what these women are declaring before Jacob. If I don't have this in this culture, in this world, life is not worth living. In a sense, that's what Rachel is declaring. She's saying it so clearly. She's saying it so powerfully. My life is not worth living without this. If you don't give me this, I'll die. Well, of course, she isn't going to die if she doesn't have children, not literally. In fact, in the ancient world, she was probably more, far more likely to die by having children. And yet, here she is, she's making a statement. My life is not worth living unless I have a child. I, I think I've been helped as many of you know, on many occasions by a guy called Tim Keller. And he, he puts his finger on this issue really helpfully, I think, where he says, we can understand and we can define, we can name our idols when we understand what, if it's taken away from me, would mean that my life is not worth living. All of these things are temporary, they're all temporary in the light of the eternal God. But if this goes, I don't want to live anymore. That's what Rachel is saying. This has moved from a desire to being an idol. This has moved to being a status which is way beyond. Now, I understand why we do that. We, I understand why we do that. Because in a sense, they are the tangible securities. And yet, how often does God take us to the point where He takes away the tangible securities so that we understand that our real securities are never, never, never found in this world? The real security that Jacob understood was when his head was on a stone pillow and he realized the reality of the living God in heaven. That's when he knew his real security. And none of this is related to that. It's related to things now. In a sense, that can be a help for us, can't it? We can look to a real hope 
which is not rooted in the things now. And in fact, when the things now don't work out the way we desperately would love them to work out, we need something bigger than them, don't we? We need something greater than them. We need something that is going to provide a stability and a worth and a value which is outside of the delivery of that particular thing or relationship. And therefore, that can only come. It can only come from a relationship which is eternal, which isn't destroyed by the things of this world. It can only come from that because everything else can be destroyed. So we see this pattern of creating desire and worth. We also see, don't we, just how Jacob responds. We live wrestling. What would, have, what would the right response have been? Give, give me children or I'll die. Jacob, what would the response correctly have been at that moment in time? What would your responsibility as a spiritual guide and care and security and support uh, in this family relationship, as messed up as it is, what would the correct response be? The correct response would be, not anger, who am I, am I God? Can I turn it around when it's God who stopped you from having children? Or would it be, okay... I know that I know that you I know why you, that you want children. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Let's take that step of being a spiritual guide and care and support, because he's absolutely right, isn't he? Jacob cannot do anything about it, but he can guide to the one who can do something about it. He can shape his family. But what we actually see is Jacob, little by little by little by little, being reduced to being a commodity of childbearing or child-creating. That's all he's become in that family. He moves from Rachel to Leah to a servant girl to another servant girl to Leah to Rachel, he's just used. He's just become the way of delivering children. He's showing no spiritual lead. And his statement just sounds like a, a God wrestle, doesn't it? Who am I? I can't do this. I can't deliver it. You know, the reality is, and, and this is so often experience, not through the success, not through succeeding in this, but mostly through failing in this. We spend our lives wrestling with God when we are not walking closely with Him. And when we are not walking closely with Him, it just spills out into everyday life. 
It spills out into our conversations. It spills out into our responses to each other. It spills out into the way that we manage our day-to-day lives. It spills out into the way that we relate and take on our spiritual responsibilities. It just spills out. And we say to Jacob, Jacob, grow up. Spiritually, grow up. Take a lead. Take a lead. Step into the place where you should be. Stand over this situation. It's messed up. It shouldn't be how it is. But you are where you are. Now take a lead. And he doesn't. (laughs) He just kind of steps down. Becomes a commodity. And then wrestles with God. And you say, do you know, Jacob, you will never, never, never take a spiritual lead until you are walking spiritually close. You'll never do it. But when you are walking spiritually close, then you will take a spiritual lead. You know, they go hand in hand. In fact, one determines the other. If you are walking closely, Jacob, you will lead. But right at the moment, you're going to carry on with just that kind of response. I love that Jacob is this this pattern that continues to, to, to live out the way we live out. He's like this mirror. He's a mirror that's, <laughs> that we look at and we say, do you know what? I just live like that again and again. I don't want to live like a Jacob. I don't want to live arguing with God. I don't want to live wrestling with God. I don't want to live with my emotions spilling out in a lack of spiritual leadership. Then look at Jacob and learn not to be like that. Learn not to be like that. Guys, learn not to be like that. You know, in reality, in human terms, Jacob has got it made. He's got four women, it seems, at his disposal. But it does not work. It is a crisis and it is a mess And the response is spiritual maturity. In fact, that's what we see Jacob going on a journey of. Guys, I I would just say at this stage, as we carry on through this series, here's an opportunity to put a stake in the ground and say, I'm going to learn how to be spiritually mature for the sake of people around me. I'm going to learn how to spiritually grow up. You know, Paul says that to one of the churches, say, do you know what? You've, you've not grown up. You've not become men. You've not started taking on your spiritual responsibility properly. I, I, w- I p- pray for spiritual matur- maturity myself, and I plead with God for spiritual maturity for this church so that we grow up and we become the people who we ought to be, spiritual leaders. There's a turning point in this little section. It comes from mandrakes. If you're Harry Potter fans, you know all about mandrakes, don't you? You pull them out the ground and they squeal, apparently. They squeal. In fact, the tradition goes back that if you uh, pull a mandrake out of the ground and it, uh, it's squealing, would kill you. 
So the, uh, the pattern that you used to uh, take for harvesting mangroves, uh, man- I knew I was going to get mandrakes. I'm going to say mangroves again and again. I'm sorry, it should be mandrakes. We'll f- forgive me when I get it wrong. It, tradition says this, you tie a rope around the mandrake, you, you dig a, a channel around it, uh, and you tie the rope onto the lead of a dog. And then you run away from the dog, and, and the dog will chase after you and pull the mandrake up. And then the dog will hear the mandrake scream, and the dog will fall down dead. And then once that's happened, it's safe to go and get the mandrake. That's what tradition says. I don't actually think I believe it myself. I think they're probably safe to just dig up. But right the way through history, mandrakes, some suggest it could even be ginseng, have an aphrodisiac kind of quality. That's the, that's the history. So Reuben, Reuben goes out. See the way it, even the son's involved in it now? Mums, it would seem, have sent Reuben out to get some mandrakes so that she might get pregnant again. Verse 14, he's out there. He finds some mandrakes, brings them back to his mom, and Rachel sees them. Okay. It would seem at this point in time, at this moment, Jacob is now sleeping with Rachel consistently. Because the trade-off is this. Rachel gets the mandrakes for the sake of Leah getting a knight with Jacob. That's the trade-off that takes place. It's a mess, isn't it? There's a gritty reality of a messed up family life. They're trading off with an aphrodisiac, a night with Jacob. Leah doesn't... Uh, Leah gets pregnant without the mandrakes. Rachel, who has the mandrakes, doesn't get pregnant. Doesn't get pregnant. Isn't that interesting? It's as though the narrator is just wanting to really reinforce it's not about what we do, it's about what God does. It's about what God does, not what we do. Verse 22 says this. Here's the turning point, it seems to me. Here's the glimmer of hope. Here's the glimmer of spirituality beginning to break into this situation. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her. So the mandrakes haven't worked, but now what, she, what is she doing now? It seems she's praying now. It seems at the end of all of this, at the end of all of the attempts, at the end of all of the kind of um, strategies, it seems as though she is at the end and now she is speaking to God. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. I think that that little moment is incredibly important 
It's, it's almost as though there is a little seed there of maybe the way people are going to start to behave, hopefully little by little. That there's a moment where Rachel gives up, speaks to God, and then against the failure of the mandrakes, she has Jake, Joseph. It's not exactly a harmonious family, is it? In fact, the way this nation or this family is birthed becomes the pattern of life for this family. Brother against brother, relationship against relationship, strife against strife, animosity, lack of relationship, just anger, jealousy everywhere. And that is the family that God uses to speak to the world. Because these sons go on to be the sons of Jacob, the nation of Israel. The ones who become the very centerpiece of God's communication to the whole of this world. And yet they're born in the way that they're born and their lives don't change. They carry on in animosity towards each other. They carry on in strife towards each other. And yet God uses them. Why? Because God is a God of astounding grace. And he says just that. He says to Israel, in in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 5, he says this. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of the land. Do you understand that, Israel? The way you were born is the way you've carried on living, and you are not righteous, but it's not because of that. It's because of my promise that you are going to be the nation that I am going to speak to this world through. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's God saying, look, I've said it back there. You're a mess, but I'm still going to deliver it because I am the God that is working. I am the God of promise. I am the God of grace. I am the God of uh, faithfulness in spite of your failures. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you to this, this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. You're stiff-necked. In other words, you just kind of, you won't turn. You so You won't turn to me. But it's not because of your integrity. It's not because of your righteousness. It's because I am a faithful God. God does not change. God continues to speak to this world. He speaks to this world through a people. And this people generally are a messed up group of people. They're a failing group of people. There are people with issues. There are people with problems. It's called the church. So can I encourage you on a few things? Number one, if you think 
that you might be connecting with this message of Christianity. You've been coming along maybe, maybe for some time, but you're looking at it and you're thinking, when I look at the way that God expects that I should live, I, I, I'm going to fail. Well, this tells us that it's about God's faithfulness, not about our ability to deliver. But it also points the finger that God says, but don't carry on living the way that you're living. You see, it's a weird combination, that, isn't it? On the one hand, God is saying spiritually grow up. On the other hand, he's saying, but your, your failures and your uh, unfaithfulness is not going to be a barrier to you being the spokespeople to this world. That's amazing. Secondly, can I say, you might be thinking, I don't like this Christianity thing because the people who I know who are Christians, so often, they're just not what they say they are. They, they, just, they just fail. They're, they're not nice people. I know. I know. And if we measure Christianity by the qualities of the followers we miss the whole point. It is not actually about the quality of the followers. It is about the quality of the founder. It is about the quality of Jesus Christ, who is perfect in every way and gives to those who are failing, messed up wretches a righteousness that they do not deserve. That is great news. Grace is a scandal. Grace is outrageous. But grace is our only hope. When we look at this little section, I think we could get to the end of it and say, God, why are you carrying on with that mess? Why don't you just choose somebody else? Go and find somebody else who's nice. And yet he doesn't. Because he carries on working with Jacob. And he carries on changing him. And he carries on wrestling with him. And he carries on reshaping him. And he carries on grinding him down in the very best of ways. So that he emerges to be something very different. Let's pray that God continues to do that to you and to me.